0: For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave welcome once again to the catholic cave i'm kent planford in the cave with me mr mark tuttle mr timothy o'donnell i i think it's time we let him in on the secret that there are no mastodons and you know we keep sending him out on mastodon hunts and I guess that's the caveman version of the snipe hunt. So this week we'll actually reveal to him there are no mastodons. He can come back now. It's such a great joke, though. <laughs> I don't want that to end. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we'll, you know, from time to time, put put up a mastodon sighting just to, just to see if we could send him out after it.
1: It's so cute, though. He just gets so excited and he runs out there with his big spear, looking for mastodons. I don't want I don't want to see that end. Yeah. Well. At some point, you know, maybe, maybe we point
0: him towards something else. You know, not, maybe not the mastodon, the woolly mammoth. We'll go for the woolly mammoth next time and, you know, change that up. But this week, we are going into Holy Week. Holy Week, uh, basically, you know, we're looking at four major days within Holy Week. We've got Palm Sunday, also known as the Passion Sunday. We've got Holy Thursday. We've got Good Friday. And we have Easter. So today we're going to kind of break down those four days. So we can call them holidays. I I prefer to call them just holy days, which is where we get the word holiday from. So let's take a look at Passion Sunday. And it, it gets that name because it's the first time in the year that we read the full Passion of Jesus during the Gospel at Mass. It's one of the longest readings, and I know every time... You know, I go to uh, the Palm Sunday Mass, the Passion Sunday Mass. I see the people in the pews kind of melting when they, when they open the, the missalette and look at the reading and think, oh, it's that one. And it's, it's the, also the, the thing that always gets me, the thing that always runs through my mind is this is the one where we start by shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to the Christ. And then 10 minutes later... Not even 10 minutes later, we find ourselves shouting, crucify
1: him. Palm Sunday is kind of a microcosm of Holy Week. And Palm Sunday is where the drama begins, too. This is when the congregation is invited to enter into the story, to participate. You know, they hand out the palms where we're given it. We actually have parts in the gospel when when it's read to a certain extent. And so we're, we're drawn into it, and the whole the whole aspect of Palm Sunday and Holy Week itself is to pull us in to the events that happened 2000 years ago so that we personally participate so that these become personally alive for us and for our spiritual life. So, the the whole proclamation of christ as king when we proclaim christ as king i always like to go through and say what what does that mean i mean we're not familiar with kings these days and we've got presidents we've got congress our laws are voted on um you know our own lives within our own cities we have a very participatory role we are in no way subject to anybody and so to proclaim christ king to wave those palms to to put him up there on the pedestal and say he truly is king of our life. Palm Sunday is a time to reflect on what that means to have Christ as a king.
0: And it's one of those situations where you take a look at what happened that that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He was fulfilling Old Testament scripture that predicted that the son of David, the next king, would be would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and be hailed as king this had to not only be the start of well the beginning of the end is what it comes down to because when Jesus came in the Pharisees and those who were well educated in in the Old Testament and in the prophecies had to recognize this they had to take one look at this and when they started talking about it you know that the romans started talking about it and all of a sudden first of all you've got someone who's claiming to be the messiah that's not going to go over well with the pharisees then you got somebody who's claiming you know claiming to be a king and you know caesar didn't like that and so when you take a look at those two situations passion sunday that that simple ride into jerusalem on the back of a donkey was the beginning of the end.
1: And once again, as we're drawn into the story, as we're Asked to take part of it, you know, the the ushers hand us that palm, you know, we, we hand that palm off to our kids because our kids love to take those palms and make little crosses out of them and wave them around. But as we're drawn into that story, we do have to ask ourselves, what part are we playing in this? You know, are, are we part of the crowd that's proclaiming Christ as as king, in which case we, we have to know in the back of our mind that in, in less than a week, we're going to be turning around and, and screaming, and crucify him. Or are we part of the Romans? Are we part of the the Pharisees that feel threatened by this? Um, do we feel like we know more and are closer to God than Jesus could ever lead us? Or are we willing to submit ourselves and allow ourselves to be drawn in and, and drawn along and, and allow our, our whole spiritual life in, in some ways to be handed over to Christ on the cross? Um, that's a tall order to ask of ourselves personally to honestly give it all over to Christ and give it all up and lay everything at his feet. Are we like the Messiahs that say, or like the Pharisees that say, you know, a Messiah like Christ is not who we're expecting. This is not who we want ruling our lives. This is not the type of person that we want in control of our life. Or are we truly willing to follow Christ all the way to the cross? That's one of the biggest challenges of Holy Week is the fact that when we can look at it
0: 2,000 years in the distance and look back and say, well, I would have stayed with him. I never would have abandoned Christ. I wouldn't be one of those who was out there shouting crucify him. The biggest problem with that is the fact that we weren't there. We didn't feel the Roman boot on our throat. We didn't feel you know, the Pharisees saying, no, this is wrong this you know this this isn't what our teaching is this this goes against our beliefs jesus you know the word radical comes to to mind when when you look at jesus especially during this week he came in and introduced a radical version of the messiah most of the people at that time expected a, a military messiah someone who was going to come in like king david himself you know Conquering and, you know, kicking the Romans out, taking back back power and becoming a a king sitting on a throne.
1: Right. And, you know, that involves raising an army that involves, you know, attracting other generals that that involves arming a populace and and having a popular movement behind you. And what Jesus wound up doing was the exact opposite. Yeah, he rode into that donkey he rode in on that donkey and from that point on there's this gradual winnowing of his followers. There's this gradual falling away until it's him and him alone and only him on that cross. Part of the challenge of Holy Week is, you know, forgetting to a certain extent everything that's happened since Easter 2000 years ago, you know, it, it is hard to imagine what the world was like before Christ came. And before, um, you know, we had the advent of, of Christianity, because really, honestly, that event, changed everything. And so getting beyond that change and trying to think through, you know, what is what is the world like now compared to what it was like before Christ came and died on the cross and, and rose again? What all did that change? It, it, it really is amazing when you think about how much that event historically has changed the whole course of history and, and the whole world. We've got
0: ourselves into a situation now where the individual is in in all likelihood and and you know in our own views the individual is king everybody's a king everybody is on the same level we look at that you know the equality that didn't exist in jesus day there was definitely what i guess you could call it a caste system there were those who were in power There were those who were, who were the leaders and those who, who wielded power. And basically it was handed down father to son, father to son, father to son for generations. No one ever really rose through the ranks.
1: Right. And part of that was there was no notion of self-sacrifice and the idea of forgiveness of a forgiving God was there certainly. But in order to get that forgiveness you had to offer something first you had to you had to present a sacrifice you had to present something and in some cases in some cult- cultures literally somebody um to atone for your own sins to to bring about some way to uh, to appease the god um or to appease god and so Christ's whole emphasis on not only self sacrifice but complete and total forgiveness for what was being done to him was so radical that it's hard for us to think about what the world was like before we had these notions before we had this idea of completely laying down your life not not just for the sake of your friends but for the sake of your enemies how much that has completely and totally changed the uh, society and and the way we go about living our lives
0: when we look at Jesus coming in to Jerusalem here in the final week of his life, we've got this situation where Jesus is, in all honesty, bringing it into the sacrificial version of worship that came through the Jewish faith. He was making, you know, week after week, especially during the, uh, the Holy Week, uh, during the Paschal Feast— um, during passover there were thousands and thousands of sacrifices made in the temple there were you know every family brought a sheep to be to be slaughtered or lamb to be slaughtered and you know offered as as their their offering for forgiveness of sin here was jesus coming in he didn't
1: offer a lamb he didn't offer a pigeon he offered himself Right. And he came in as a military commander. He came in as the Messiah, although he came riding on a donkey to bring about peace, the idea that he was coming to expel, the Bad. He was coming to get rid of the Romans. He was coming to, you know, expel all of those elements that had um, over the years kind of corrupted Judaism, um, you know, he was coming to get rid of those. And rather than coming with a sword to purge all of those from Jerusalem and to conquer Jerusalem again and to bring Jerusalem back to God in this fallen world, he came. And instead, he redeemed it and he redeemed it not by expelling others, but by drawing everybody to himself and giving of himself completely, totally and self-sacrificially on the cross. And it was
0: that sacrifice that replaced the blood sacrifice. It was Jesus' blood, Jesus' body that was offered. And that brings us to Holy Thursday. And that's where we'll pick up right after this break on the Catholic Cave. Think of all the media our young people are exposed to today. MTV, movies, what passes for entertainment on TV, song lyrics that are questionable or worse. Where do they hear the message that it's okay to be chaste and modest or that it's not crazy to practice their faith or to believe in a God who loves them and can forgive them no matter what they do? Catholic Radio is the answer. Be sure to tell your friends and relatives about Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to The Catholic Cave, I'm Kent Blanford with Mark Tuttle, and we are talking about Holy Week. And we found ourselves, we finished Passion Sunday, and we've walked our our view of the sacrifice that was being made during this week up to the point of Holy Thursday. Now, Holy Thursday, traditionally, is the celebration of Jesus of the Passover meal with the Twelve on the night that he was betrayed. The begin once again here we have another beginning to the end
1: and we also have the beginning of the betrayal and i think that's uh you know holy thursday of i guess of all of the the, the triduum it's probably the most lighthearted to a certain extent you know there, there's a very heavy somber sad feeling around good friday and then around easter um you know, there, there's a joy, but it's a very serious joy. I mean, it's a very majestic joy. You know, the Easter Vigil and, and Easter Sunday, those are, are very uh, majestic the best word I can come up with. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're a celebratory, but it's not a lighthearted celebratory. Monday, Thursday is... Well, lighthearted in the sense that it's intimate. You know, you're, you're, you're drawn into the story. This is Jesus gathering with the 12 with his closest disciples. And it's the beginning of when they begin to betray him and walk away from him. And you start to see it, not just in Judas, who's obviously the most dramatic betrayal, but you see it in the reactions of Peter and, and you see it in the reactions of the other disciples as, as they begin to kind of lose faith in Jesus and begin to all sort of drift away um, to that moment where it's just Jesus by himself. Yeah.
0: A big part of that comes from the fact that, you know, just before this, Jesus had told them, and, and at the beginning of the Last Supper, he tells them, I shall not eat with you again. This is the last meal I will I ha- will celebrate with you and you know when when your leader when someone you love when someone you've been following for several years now tells you it's over this is the last time I'm going to sit down and eat with you that's got to be not just a shock but you know a, that's a gut punch you're you're going to be looking at that and saying wait a minute wait a minute we've been following you for for all this time we we're looking forward to something there's there's got to be
1: something more and you're telling us It's going to end. Yeah. Not only that, but we gave up everything. You know, when, when we followed you, there was a risk. We gave up our livelihoods. We, we, we left our families for, for the time being, we followed you all over Israel and now you're saying you're leaving us. And you're, you're saying that, well, we have to love one another and we have to serve one another because you're going to be gone. Um, yeah, not only a, a gut punch, but, the, but there's a certain amount of, of a feeling in, in some ways betrayed by Jesus's own plan. And, um, that's a familiar feeling, I think for a lot of Christians and for a lot of us is that, that feeling that, where is God right now? I'm in the midst of something. I followed God to this point. I've done what God's asked. I've been faithful. And now it feels like God's telling me, you know, carry on, but I'm, I'm going to be leaving you for the time being. And um, you know those, those are emotions and things that we, we often try to dodge and often try to neglect in our own spiritual life. And Holy Thursday, especially the vigil after the Mass. So most parishes will have the Holy Thursday Mass, and then after that, we'll keep vigil there in front of the tomb in some form of adoration. And um, that time during adoration is a time to deal with all of those times where we've wondered, God, why have you led me here? Why have you brought me to this place only to seemingly leave me here? Because I, I don't think that's a, a, a unique or even strange feeling. I think that's a feeling that just about every Christian has gone through at one point or another. You know, it's, it's one of
0: those matters where I, I had a friend years ago who uh, was running a business, and um, it was in trouble it was about to go under and um i remember you know we were we were talking and you know he was just you know about on his last leg and he always wore this little holy spirit pin on his lapel and at one point when we were talking he took it off and he dropped it on the desk and i looked at him and he he said i don't get it i pray i pray i pray i pray god doesn't do anything he said he's not answering my prayers and i looked at him and i said you know god answers all prayers it's just that sometimes the answer is no when you have to accept that and be able to move on we feel betrayed by god when the answer is no but in the end we have to take on faith that that no is in our best interest
1: and that's another aspect of, of Holy Thursday, that God knows and you know our lack of understanding of what God's plan, a lot of it is rooted in the fact that our vision of things is very worldly. And on Holy Thursday, God... God takes his mission that was here on earth, and he extends it universally throughout all of time and all of space and all of eternity by instituting the Eucharist for the first time. You know, he suddenly centers that mission and that proclamation of the kingdom of God that he's been talking about for three years. He suddenly focuses that back onto this Eucharistic moment where his life is turned into his body and blood that's given to us. Not just then, not just now, not just on Holy Thursday at Mass that night, but for all eternity, throughout all time, throughout all space, in a way that literally transforms the history of mankind. And... To take that and, and try to transform our own lives, which get very myopic at times. You know, we, we start to focus in on, on our own life. We start to focus in on, on sort of the worldly aspects of our own existence. Um, Holy Thursday reminds us that, you no, know, what's going on here is so much larger, so much more vast, so much bigger than the material world. What we're talking about here are spiritual riches that have an eternal meaning that really, literally, is beyond our comp- comprehension with the eucharist we're looking at a situation
0: where we find ourselves actually in the presence of Christ we as catholics believe that you know the eucharist the body the blood is the body blood soul and divinity of Christ right there before us and unfortunately the eucharist is unites us but in many cases within christianity the Eucharist also divides us, unfortunately, because of our different beliefs and in, in what the Eucharist is and what what that uh, that communal meal should be. I mean, many of our Protestant brethren they have a communion service, but their communion service they believe is strictly symbolic. And th- this is one of one of the things that has always kind of caught my eye, caught my ear, is the fact that you know many of the protestant denominations believe sola scriptura it's only the bible only scripture and every word in there is absolutely true every word is to be taken as the truth except that in many cases they take the words of jesus at the last supper when jesus said this is my body oh that's symbolic
1: Right. And they take the, they take the words in the book of John where Jesus, you know, says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no life in you. They take, they take that as, as merely symbolic. And then when you look at the aftermath of that, you know, when Jesus basically kind of foreshadowed and and prophesied the, the Eucharist, um, the multitudes fell away from him. The multitudes said, "You know, who can follow him anymore?" And even the disciples were left to a certain extent dumbfounded. And when Jesus asked them, "Do you believe?" You know, their only answer was really, "Jesus, we we have nowhere else to go." Um, it wasn't, a, "We really do believe you." They, you can kind of hear the disappointment and and lack of belief in their minds. But they're at the they're at the Last Supper. When Jesus did institute the Eucharist, um, you know, I, th- I think a veil to a certain extent was was removed from the eyes of the disciples. So they were able to see um, that Jesus was offering himself body, blood, soul, and divinity there in the Eucharist in a way that was completely 100% self-sacrificial and completely 100% divine. So here, I think this is the other revelation that happens with the Eucharist there were hints of it, it throughout scripture you've got the uh you've got the um, transfiguration, Um, you've got other, you've got the baptism, you've got other moments where Jesus reveals himself as God and divine. But there at the Eucharist, God kind of reveals himself in the way that he is going to dwell with us throughout the rest of human history in the Eucharist. And so that moment of God revealing himself, not only as Messiah, not only as Savior, but as God incarnate and God incarnate, Incarnate in a way that is offered for us and accessible to us Throughout all of the rest of human history Um, You know that's something profound and it's something that honestly it takes longer than just a night of vigil To kind of comprehend and and try to get your mind around
0: when we look at the at the Eucharist, you know, we tend to see the bread we see ourselves see, you know the big word transubstantiation and you know that that's been a divisive word throughout um, you know history since about oh fourteen fifteen hundred um but when we take a look at the eucharist and the fact that it is bread in the beginning god has always provided bread for his people look at the ex- exodus what did what did we have we had manna and when jesus taught us to pray what words did he use give us this day our daily bread bread is is the nourishing factor that has always joined god and man and in this case the bread becomes our lord and savior when we take a look at that powerful image of the bread being not just a symbol but truly being christ himself we ask for our daily bread, and it's given to us.
1: And just like all of the days during Holy Week, we're asked to be part of the story. We're drawn into part of the story, and particularly after Mass, you know, we're, we're asked to go and pray, you know, in front of the Eucharist, in memory of His disciples going to the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ. And it's there that they all fall away. It's there that they fall asleep. It's there that and during that time that the Judas goes back and, and gets the temple guards to come arrest Jesus. It's there that Jesus is betrayed by a kiss. It's there that Peter begins to have doubts, you know, he wants to reach for a sword. He begins to kind of lose faith in this idea that that Jesus is somehow going to save them in some other way. Um, And so he resorts back to this idea that, you know, I got to defend myself. I got to defend Jesus. He he grabs a sword. All of the, the, the falling away, all of the lack of faith, all of the infidelity to a certain extent begins to to come about right after God has shown himself to be the bread of life. You know, the, the center to a certain extent of all of history there in the Eucharist right after that, we join with the disciples in remembering when they went to the garden of Gethsemane and each in their own way began to fall away. And that takes us through Holy Thursday. We're going to take a
0: short break here. We'll be back with more of the Catholic Cave right after this, looking at Good Friday. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indie. Catholic Radio Indie. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford, in the Cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle, and we are talking Holy Week. Now, with Holy Week, we've covered Passion Sunday, the Palm Sunday. We've covered Holy Thursday, the Last Supper, and now we're taking a look at good friday now (laughs) good friday in and of itself that's one of those terms that a lot of people when when they hear good friday and they don't understand the entire picture of what happens during holy week
1: good friday jesus died what was good about that Exactly. You know, one of the the strange quotes from history that comes to mind on Good Friday most to me is the quote from Nietzsche. When Nietzsche very famously um, uses the description and and story of a, a man running through town suddenly realizing God is dead. And my goodness, we're the ones who killed him. And to a certain extent, that's exactly what Good Friday is. Good Friday is a reminder to a certain extent that we ourselves, left to our own devices, we ourselves murder God. We ourselves want to get rid of God. We, we want to make God our slave. We want to make God our slave to such extent that we want to kill him the way that slaves were killed. You know, in the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen and you were condemned to death, you were beheaded. If you were a slave, you were crucified. So his very crucifixion and mode of death, um, as grisly as it is, more importantly, it shows us the position that he had lowered himself to within Roman society and within Jewish society to allow himself to be condemned to death as a slave. And we're the ones that did it to him. And I think that's the, the big takeaway from good Friday is none of us, none of us are innocent in this desire and, and act of, I mean, cosmic murder. I mean, you can't, you can't think of anything more evil to a certain extent than murdering God and in one way or another, we all partook in that. We all took part in that. We are all to a great extent guilty of murdering God. Mark, growing up, I always
0: remember Good Friday as being a very different day. I mean, I went to Catholic schools and I very, very distinctly remember on good friday if we were in school some years we weren't some years they they you know we we were out at noon and if we were in school from noon to 3 p.m there was not a word said in the classroom it went quiet it was you know a time of you're going to sit there and you're going to pray now for a second or third grader that that was tough that was tough i mean i i've Vividly remember sitting there looking at the clock and thinking, why are we sitting here? Why are we sitting here? I didn't understand. And it was only many, many years later when I look back and I realized that, you know, with our modern lives and with the way we do things today, you know, noon to to three o'clock on Good Friday, a lot of years I was at work. I was, you know, you know, doing the same thing I did every other day of the of the week, every day, other day of the year, and it really didn't make any difference. But when I look back, and it's like, ah, oh, I wish I had known back then. I wish I had been able to really take in those 3 hours that were given to me to really appreciate what was
1: being commemorated during that time. And you know, Good Friday is a great invitation, I think, to take a little bit of a, a spiritual retreat from our lives. Um, you're right; the the world does not stop. Unlike Christmas, unlike Easter, unlike a lot of other holidays, the world goes on. The world the world continues on Good Friday. And um, you know, if you can take the time, if you can take take the, have the ability to take the afternoon off of work, um, you know, have that that time to just sort of withdraw, um, make a little retreat of it for yourself, so that you can sort of absorb in silence um not only the 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 importance of of jesus's death on the cross but the the importance of all of holy week um you know of, of his of his eventual resurrection and and conquering um conquering death and what that means in our own personal lives. Good Friday is a fantastic time to find that silent time, to find that quiet time. You know, silence is such a rare commodity in our day and age. Um, You know, you you wake up in the morning, and unless you wake up, I I think four o'clock, four o'clock is is sort of the strange hour where you can actually find silence. But, you know, even by the time you hit five o'clock, the world's starting to move. Um, You know, people are starting, you know, the, the early risers are starting to move and, and all of that. And so from, from five o'clock, literally probably until four o'clock the next day, there's not a moment of silence within our world. The, the world is continually moving. And so to find a time where you can find silence and to find a time where you can contemplate what it means for time to stop, because that's another aspect of Good Friday, is time to a certain extent stopped when Jesus died on the cross. Time and eternity kind of paused um, as Jesus was was there dead. And, and Jesus said his last words, and everything stopped. Um, to contemplate what that means for things to stop, to contemplate what that means for there to be utter, complete, total stillness and utter, complete silence. Um, good Friday is a fantastic time to, to just take that time and, and, and think about it. And you know, even the church, even the church herself on good Friday stops. There's no mass on Good Friday. Um, the Eucharist is not offered on Good Friday. It's the one day of the year where the church's sole mission in the world to, to dispense sacraments to a great extent. Um, you know, we, we joke about um, churches becoming sacrament factories, you know, meaning that they're not teaching people, they're not enriching lives, they're just dispensing sacraments. Well, that's because that's the base mission of the church. That's what the church is there to do, to dispense sacraments. And on Good Friday, that stops. So taking the time to kind of step back, think about what it means for all of time, for all of eternity, for God himself to stop, what that really means. Um, good Friday is a, a day that if you've got the time and you've got the ability to, to take off, to think through it, um, it's well worth it.
0: You know, There are a number of really good books out there about the crucifixion, about the last days, the last words of Christ. And one of the things that I Came across this year that um, I intend to uh, to put into my contemplation during that uh, that period from noon to three p.m. on on Good Friday is the words of Christ on the cross: "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" And to most people, when they when they hear that, and they assume that all those around him are, I say, "Oh, you know, God's abandoned him." god you know god's left him on his own the truth is those words are the beginning of the 22nd psalm and the 22nd psalm uh, well you got to remember okay let's take it take a look at the the people of jesus time the pharisees anyone who is a truly educated jewish person at that time they prayed the psalms the psalms were their prayer book they knew these psalms inside out most of them you know had many of them memorized so if jesus were to say from the the cross my god my god why hast thou forsaken me that would be the same as you know me saying for example um it was the best of times it was the worst of times it cues you in to the whole story and if you read that 22nd psalm it's not all about despair it's not all about being abandoned it ends with praise to God and with a worship of God saying the Lord will take the throne so if those who were listening at that time heard those words you know my God my God why hast thou forsaken me and read the rest of the story in their head they knew he wasn't just saying God's abandoned me he's saying the king is coming.
1: Yeah, that 22nd psalm is a victim psalm. It's a it's a, a prayer um, from the perspective of a victim of huge injustice, a victim of huge oppression, a, a victim, honestly, of, of murder um, as you read through it. And if, for Christ to, to utter that on the cross and identify himself as the the total complete victim, um, you know, offering himself up in the place of of the victim, and then as you said, it doesn't end there. You know, it ends in, in vindication. It ends in in God vindicating this victim in the twenty second Psalm. You know, that the, that promise of vindication that's going to come on Easter is there left sort of hanging in the the air. Um, but it really does also kind of show to a certain extent the utter forgiveness that's there at the base and the foot of the cross, you know, his, um, his other important words uh, that he utters, you know, the meditation on the, the seven last words of Christ is a important Catholic tradition. And, and once again, if you can take the time off of work to go and, and go to church and a lot of parishes will walk you through meditations on those seven last words. But when Christ forgives those that perpetrate this, because they know not what they do, um, that, that powerful forgiveness, that is not just, life-changing for each individual one of us, but that's history changing. That idea that the proper way to respond to a grave injustice is not through vengeance, is not through trying to get back, but through utter self-giving to the point where we lower ourselves to the status of a slave and offer our lives to our enemies and then forgive them that had ramifications not just on that day but throughout all of human history we hearken back to the words
0: love your enemies and in this situation jesus found himself surrounded by those who you know were his enemies at the moment and yet he he opened his heart he opened his hands opened his arms on the cross and simply said lord forgive them they know
1: not what they do We forget how utterly radical that was because we live well after it. You know, those words and those actions and Jesus' death on the cross, we live in a time where it has completely, utterly changed the world. It has changed all of history after that. And so when we look back on it from our standpoint in history, we lose sight of how radical it really is to offer yourself up completely, totally, self-sacrificially rather than in some way demanding more sacrifice, rather than in some way demanding vengeance or demanding that we get back at our enemies to completely and utterly give yourself up and forgive. We live in a world where that's now the norm, all because of that one day where Jesus set the example for us and did it for the rest of us there on the cross.
0: And with that, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with as paul harvey would say the rest of the story you're listening to catholic radio indy converting the culture to christ through radio featuring 100 percent catholic programming 24 7. do your friends a favor tell them about catholic radio indy have you ever thought about joining the catholic church have you just wanted to explore the catholic faith All you need to do is call your local Catholic church for more information. We are
1: always happy to help you in your journey to discover and learn more about the Catholic faith. We have classes that are almost year-round, and the classes and information sessions do not involve making a commitment, and there is no pressure to join. Please call your local Catholic parish for more information today
0: and start the journey of one day possibly becoming Catholic as well. God bless feel so closer to God each day. and just helps me stay grounded in my faith and just keeps me
1: going. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here in the studio with Kent Blantford, and we are talking about Holy Week. And we have gone through the events of Holy Week from Passion Sunday all the way through the death of Jesus on Good Friday. And now we are ready for Easter. This is what we've been training ourselves for, to a certain extent for 40 days now. So, you know, the story of Easter, at least for us personally, started even before Holy Week. It started at the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday when we donned those ashes on our foreheads and reminded ourselves and tried to put ourselves in in a a place of, of remembrance and recollection of our place within the universe that Remember, man, thou art dust, and from dust thou shalt return. And so now, after 40 days um, of, of penance, of fasting, we suddenly get to the feasting. We get to the great feast of Easter. And it starts in a peculiar way when you think about it. It starts at that vigil mass on Saturday. And it starts outside the church doors. We, we, we don't go inside the church. We start outside the church gathered around a fire, which, you know, my family, um, I married into a Latvian family. And so, you know, bonfires and these types of things, you know, it's, it's part of that Northern European Latvian Germanic culture to have these big bonfires and they're, they, they bring connotations of pagan worship and, and, uh, worshiping the, 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 Druids and the trees and all of that. And Easter Sunday starts with a bonfire out in front of the church. And I always, I always have to, to wonder, you know, how, how Christian really are we? But I think that's in some ways, I think that's why the church starts there with a big bonfire to set Christianity apart to a certain extent from all the rest of the, the religions from all the rest of the world. Um, that would have feasts that start with some sort of ritual immolation of a victim, um, you know, some sort of burning of yep. uh, of, of a, a victim in commemoration of the death of a sacrificial victim. Yep. We're reminded of that's what we're doing, but it's utterly and completely transformed and turned on its head. It's very much like the um,
0: the sacrifice of the temple when you know a burnt offering was given. For atonement. Here we are, you know, Christ at this point, you know, Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He's been laid in the tomb. And we wait in stillness. It's dark. It's, and I, I'm going to bring bring this up as a, a side point here. Many churches over the years that I've gone to have always, in my mind, and with the dawning of uh, daylight savings time, I've always started the Easter vigil mass far too early when you start the Easter vigil mass and the sun is still up it just doesn't have the impact that it does once the sun is set and so you know that later vigil mass has always been to me more impactful because you've got the darkness and here comes the light Out of the darkness.
1: Yeah. And that darkness and then suddenly the light coming and transforming and dispelling the darkness, you know, that calls to mind not just the resurrection of Christ, but the creation of the universe. When God, you know, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, you know, that that moment when we do turn the lights on in the church and we sing the, the Gloria for the first time in, in 40 days um, and the bells are ringing. That's a moment of new creation. Um, you know, it, it calls to mind the the creation of the whole universe and the beginning of everything. And that moment should be a new beginning for us. It should be that time when we're recreated and when we allow that new creation to, impact us and for us to reflect in, in what ways has this 40 days time period, this 40 days of prayer, of penance, of fasting, in what ways has the journey through the the other parts of Holy Week leading up to this moment, in what ways has this been a new beginning and a new creation to allow me to be resurrected with Christ? You know, one thing I want to ask you, Mark,
0: and, and on, on a personal level, you were a convert. You came into the church. Did you come in at the Easter Vigil Mass? I did. I did, and, uh, and it,
1: wh- what was that like for you? Well, I the 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 part that i remember most was receiving the eucharist obviously because you know that's the first time you've received the true body blood soul and divinity of christ and so i remember that moment i remember you know the the moment of prayer the the intimate prayer afterwards which to this day is probably one of the most intimate times i've spent with god in prayer was was after that I, you know, the rest of it was a celebration. You know, it was a celebration of of coming into uh, into the church. And honestly, I've had probably more, I think, heartfelt, thoughtful, reflective Easter's since then. But. It was a time of, honestly, new beginning and and resurrection coming into the church. Now, I wasn't baptized on, on Easter Vigil. I, I had been raised in a, a Christian family where I had been baptized as an infant, and, and you know, the formula of baptism was was valid. So I, I remember having the conversation with the priest where he wanted to make sure that the water had actually trickled down my head and I hadn't just been sprinkled, because you, you have to have flowing water for it to be a valid baptism. So I had to go back and ask my parents who, who you know, they're they're still to this day, Protestant, you know? Okay. So when, when he baptized me, was there actually water falling down my head or was, was it just sprinkled on me? And they thought that was the most bizarre question. And, and my dad, it was, I'd I like my dad's answer. He's like, son, I can tell you honestly from your Christian journey that you were truly baptized. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, I can, I can accept that. So you know, the Easter vigil mass for me, I have a
0: hard time with it simply because for years and years, I've been a a parish musician. The Easter Vigil Mass is one of the most demanding uh, liturgies musically that you have to do throughout the year. And so I wish just once, and and I, I swear one of these years, I'm going to take Easter off. I'm going to step away from the music so I can just sit in the pew and actually experience the vigil mass because there are so many distractions that the musicians go through. It's like, okay, what comes up next? Okay, and how long, what's the cue for this? What are we coming up on this? And, you know, it becomes, you know, a performance more than than a liturgical happening. And I've always wondered... You know, what would it be like to be one of those people who is here and experiencing this liturgy for the first time?
1: Right. And it's hard to put yourself in a place to where you are experiencing it for the first time. Part of the reason why it's so demanding for the musicians is because you have six readings throughout. uh, salvation history so you're 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 literally being walked through from the creation story to the fall of man you know all the way through and you know part of that is in that long proclamation that's chanted and so as a musician taking part in the chant of that um, oftentimes the priests are the the ones and the musicians don't really have much of a part but a lot of times it's set to music Um, so you know but but that that whole walk i think from from the creation all the way through to the resurrection um and to the to the gloria all of that is is, are readings that are then set to music and you have responses that are set to music between each of them and each in different flavors i've noticed in in some parishes so a lot of parishes are are changing those settings a little bit to try to put you in the mood of whatever is being conveyed by that particular reading yeah
0: to in in the most part for me when i think of the easter vigil mass the easter vigil mass is music and you know there are all those readings and it's always the longest mass of the year uh one mass that uh that i did at uh my old parish saint gabriel we had almost 30 people who were being baptized and brought into the church that was the longest mass i've ever experienced in my life but it was also one of the most beautiful celebrations I've ever seen you know, with all these people and thinking, all of these people want to be part of this church, want to be part of what Christ offered himself up for so that we could have this beautiful community to be part of today.
1: Yeah, it's the beauty of the mass, and 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 you're right. The Easter Vigil Mass tends to be the most beautiful mass of the year, but it's the beauty of the mass, and honestly, the beauty of the Catholic Church that has brought so many converts into the church. Um, you know in some ways we've we've over the years kind of lost a little bit of our, our traditions of beauty within the church and you know, we've, we've kind of hidden the statues for a little while um, you know the the architecture of the church we've we've kind of we've whitewashed the walls to a certain extent we've gotten away from stained glass windows that depict images of, of Bible history for you know more I don't I don't know modern um splashes of color Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and we've lost a lot of the impact and importance of beauty into our reverence and into our prayer life and into our worship of God. And Easter vigil brings that back. You know, Easter vigil brings back a focus on beauty as part of the transcendentals. You know, when we when we think about who God is and what God is, well God is ultimate truth, he's ultimate goodness, but he's also also ultimate beauty. And so having that the recollection there on Easter vigil through the music, through um, you know, honestly the the decoration within most sanctuaries are the most ornate and there's the most attention put to the appearance of the church on Easter and that Easter vigil. You know, we, we bring flowers from all over the place to decorate the, the churches on Easter. That attention to beauty, um, you know, brings back to mind the importance of beauty within not just our own worship and not just within our own liturgies, but really within our own lives. Yeah,
0: it's that, that we're coming back to the philosophical concept of aesthetics that beauty that we truly appreciate the world and What it has to
1: offer us through the beauty
0: that we see
1: right and that beauty of course is all directed at trying to call to mind the impact of this new creation this recreation that we find in Christ and honestly a recreation of the entire universe through Christ's resurrection Christ truly conquered death and think about what death is you know death is, is death isn't just our own physical death it's the decay it's the falling away it's the betrayal it's all the aspects that draw us away from God and God came to earth sacrificed himself, allowed himself to be murdered on a cross as a slave so that he could recreate it, so that he could bring it all back to himself, make it all new and bring it all back to life in a glorious, beautiful way there on Easter Sunday. And that is what we
0: will be celebrating this week. I hope that, uh, you know, maybe we've pointed you towards some of the things that You know, you can think of during this week as you attend different services and uh, as Holy Week plays out. At this point, all I can say is I really hope that you take the advantage, take the opportunity to spend this Holy Week really looking at what God has done for us. Not only His sacrifice, but His resurrection and the gifts He's given us throughout this week. That is all the time we have for this week for the Catholic Cave. For Mark Tuttle, for myself, have a wonderful Holy Week and a blessed Easter, and we'll be back next week with more on The Catholic Cave. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400.
1: So the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like
0: company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome.
1: Catholic Radio Indy.